millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's up, everybody? And welcome to The Reluctant Historian. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson. And this is our reluctant historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history, and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. Well, Dakota, on today's podcast, we are talking about Lizzie Borden. Who the hell is that? (laughs) Yeah. Did uh, you pick her just because she has your name? Yes, actually. (laughs) I know. I have her name, really, because she's older no, than No, she me. was named after you. That's how that worked, That's wasn't true. It? That's true, yeah. Yeah, you were the, the very prestigious host of The Reluctant Historian, okay? Like, That's true. That's don't true. get this mistaken. <laughs> You're famous. That's true. Our 20 listeners. Average 15, but... No, tw- 20. 20, really? Oh. Yes. Actually, we should talk about them today. Sure. Let us talk about them. We appreciate them. We love you. We really do. Thank you for listening to us. Yeah, uh, we uh, we have a we have a consistent listener from France. We do from uh, from Clichy, France. That is not how to pronounce that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, cliche. I think no, it's not cliche. I think it's Clichy. That's a very <laughs> Canadian way, I guess, of saying. Oh, that. it's a it's a Clichy, eh? <laughs> yeah. But we appreciate you, whoever you are, and we would like love to hear from some of our listeners. Yes, yeah, you can contact us at uh, the Reluctant Historian at gmail dot com or follow us on Instagram at the Reluctant Historian. Yeah, <laughs> Whoa. the most shameless plugs ever, but also cool. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So sit down, buckle up, and get ready to listen to the history of Lizzie Borden. like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory in the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. So, golden nuggets, I guess. We gotta do golden nuggets and then I'm gonna talk about who Lizzie Borden is. Yeah, it's been a while since we actually recorded, so... uh, (laughs) I forget how to run this podcast. Yeah, okay. What's your uh, golden nugget, Golden Dakota? nugget. So let me tell you what my isn't my golden nugget, okay. first of all. I feel like we should have like an antithesis for the golden nugget. So like a box of coal? A box of coal. Let me tell you my box of coal okay. before I get into my golden nugget. Great. It, there was snow on the That's ground this true. morning. It is April, okay? I bet they don't didn't, didn't wake up in Clichy, France to snow on the ground this morning. I Probably not. But let me tell you my golden nugget, Good. which is that my uh, 
uh, my garden boxes came. I just ordered a few garden boxes to uh, uh, start growing my crop, and uh, so I can feed my family. I'm a farmer. I'm a farmer. I uh, I live off the land, and I'm very excited. I just put them together, and I'm gonna start. I'm gonna buy some soil from them. My sister was uh, telling me uh, what I need to get for uh, soil, and mm-hmm. I'm so excited to see what I can grow from this uh, girl from nothing great so i thought you were gonna say that you and your whole team got vaccinated as your golden nugget oh that's a that's a cool golden nugget i guess i mean i i I guess i'm he's a healthcare worker so he's a frontline worker uh, (laughs) i'm uh yes i am vaccinated which is cool i have this feeling of superiority (laughs) over my well, I was going to say fellow human, but I'm like mostly just cut above now. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, no, I I kid. But yeah, that's very cool. I am I am vaccinated. That's, so, yeah. Hopefully, you will get vaccinated in the next 6 years or something. Hopefully, like that. I don't However know. long it's going to take. That's true. So, May 10th apparently. May t- May 10th, really? Is when they open it up to my age group. Oh, that's cool. That's only a month away. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, that is neat. What about you? What is your golden nugget? Yeah, I have so many golden nuggets. I didn't know which one to pick. So okay. I don't like, should I save some of them for next week? Or should I talk about all of them? Like, I don't know what to do here. So I, I let's do, do a rapid fire. Just uh, give me give me a just a blurb about each of them. Okay, so Valhalla is amazing. Love it. Assassin's Creed Valhalla on the PlayStation 4. Yeah, for except for the bug breaking <laughs> game. So Valhalla and Ubisoft, get your ducks in a row, please. Poop in a group, as it were. As that were. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, All of our patio furniture. Yeah, we got a, a patio furniture for $400, so that's cool. And a fire pit. And the fence. And we got a fence put in, which we did ourselves. Yes. It's very impressive. You can tell we did it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it looks cool, though. It does. Um, All of the really amazing new things on Netflix. So I watched Run last night. With Sarah Paulson, right? You were you kind of mentioned it. But yes, I don't. But I didn't want to really give any spoilers. Oh, it's really good. Telling me the synopsis is a spoiler. Yeah, it's about like mother daughter relationships. Ah, sort of, but like I more sinister than would that. Know nothing about that. You wouldn't. So. Yes, <laughs> more sinister. Well, you watched like three mother daughter relationships. That's true. Yeah. I guess I know a little bit of something about that. Yeah, but it's more sinister. Well, cool. Yeah, that's that's good. <laughs> yeah. So the Netflix, everything that's on Netflix, I'm very excited to watch. And then Parks and Rec, the final episode, I watched it last night. I've never seen Parks and Rec before, and I adored the series. And I just thought the last season and the series end was like nothing happened. It was kind of lame if you think in terms of like how to like actually write a good story. But for me, as a person who doesn't like surprises, and it was just like, oh, it was so good. I was so happy. Yeah, well, I mean, I was it crying wraps, a lot. wraps all the stories up in a nice little bow. Yeah, so which you, is what I want. Yeah, you feel like everybody's going to be okay. Yeah. Which is nice. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have to stress about anything. Yeah, that's a, yeah, those are, those are good series finales when you just, you want to see their story wrapped up in a happy way mm-hmm. that doesn't lead their story. Essentially, they're dead after that. <laughs> you're like, they're dead. <laughs> what? Like that. You, you just, your their story is over and they're 
They live happily ever after, yeah. and nothing bad yeah. ever happens to them ever again. I know it's so good. <laughs> That's the beauty of television. Oh, I was so happy. I was so yeah. happy. Yeah, I think I want to go back and rewatch at least that episode because I don't remember it at all. But uh, yeah, it's, it's well, a banger of a show. We have to watch the COVID nineteen episode now. Right. Yes, for those of you who don't know, or last year or earlier in the year, they recorded a special Parks and Rec episode about six or six years or so after the series finale and just did that from their phones on Zoom or whatever and sent yeah. it to get edited together into an episode. And I still haven't have yet to seen it, yet to see it, yeah. <laughs> rather. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. very cool. Okay, Those so good golden nuggets. Yeah. All right, Lizzie Borden. So you asked me if I picked her because of her name. Okay, hold on. Lizzie Borden. <laughs> I hope this uh, this episode doesn't board in me. <laughs> oh, fuck, I'm funny. Oh, apparently. Um, yeah, so when I was in high school, mm-hmm. my name was Lizzie. Because I have one of those cool names where I can like be a billion different things. So yeah. I went by Lizzie as a high school youngin. Uh, so when then I first joined the wrestling team, mm-hmm. um, I was still going by Lizzie, and my coach was like, Lizzie, like Lizzie Borden? And then ever since then, I was like, who is this Lizzie Borden person? And also, I never want to be called that ever again. So actually, it was my wrestling coach that facilitated the change from Lizzie to Liz. Interesting. Sorry, side note. Uh, did your coach sound like that? Hey, Lizzie, Lizzie Borden? A little bit, yeah. He was, uh, he was a a person i have I'm, <laughs> one of the girls in my uh, office is also a wrestler mm-hmm. um and we feel like well oh, we and i don't she and i don't think that we have ptsd from wrestling but uh some of the people in the office think that we might have some PS- ptsd from you know just the things you go through as an elite athlete and i was yeah. never as elite as her and like yeah so really? yeah that is a story oh, well, for another time that sounds like a therapy session for another time perhaps it is <laughs> yes so who was lizzie borden uh, yes is that name familiar to you dakota well it may be if i tell you that uh, in 2015 okay. <laughs> i see this is the elizabeth elizabeth show <laughs> don't get to fucking answer maybe if i tell you that in 2015 supernatural aired an episode entitled thin lizzie oh wait what year uh, 2015. Interesting. Dakota really likes Supernatural. Um, Thin Lizzy. I'm trying to think of what episode that would be. There are over 300 episodes of the show, mm. so and it mm-hmm. was probably a filler episode. Yeah, I would guess so. But just based on what I had read about it. Oh, interesting. Do you know anything about it? Well, it's about her. It's about Lizzie Borden. Is it? Okay. Yeah. So I don't remember, but. Maybe we could watch They that meet episode. her ghost. Yeah, we episode. should do that. Yeah. Okay, oh, gosh. <laughs> Actually, though, would love to watch a movie with you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Okay. <laughs> we'll, well. we'll do that tonight. <laughs> well, she is a well-known American murderer who was tried oh. and acquitted of murdering her father and stepmother with an axe. Well, okay. Okay, this... This took an interesting uh, turn. I... When you said Lizzie Borden, I was like... That doesn't. That doesn't. Some boring lady yeah, from history. Yeah, like like what the what the fuck did she do? You know, mm-hmm. but she wasn't even on the list of your like top five um, most influential. Seven. Women. It was seven influential. S- sorry, I clearly shows how much I listen. But <laughs> <laughs> but you tell me that she murdered people, and I am interested, and so is the audience. Yes, I felt like a true crime podcaster doing this research. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. sorry. So who did she murder? 
her father and stepmother. Classic. Yeah. Classic. The 1893 murder trial was a media sensation. It was dubbed the trial of the century by the reporters who covered the lurid details and the brutal deaths of her father and stepmother. And she has since become part of pop culture, even inspiring a famous nursery rhyme, which continued to haunt her long after her acquittal. And it goes something like this. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw that she was done, she gave her father 41. I don't know if they wrapped it that way, but... <laughs> that was that, that was good. I... <laughs> Yeah. Wait, gave her father 41? Yes. Well, and also... What does that mean? Like, 41 wax. Oh, I was like, $41? No. Like, she paid him? <laughs> no. Um, but also, those numbers are inaccurate. That's not actually... That's not actually how many times oh. she hit them with the axe. Well, and she was acquitted, so she didn't... I mean... Wait, wait, wait. So, hold on. It was, she allegedly killed them? Is this one of those situations? Yeah, but once we get through it, you'll see what I say. What I see, what I see. You'll see what I see. I'll see what I, I'll see what you see. Yes. Okay. Cool. <laughs> she was born in 1860 and died in 1927 in Fall River, Massachusetts, and struggled to make a life for herself in a world that believed she was guilty. Lizzie Andrew Borden. Her middle name is Andrew. <laughs> That's dumb. <laughs> She's a girl. <laughs> you can have boy names if you're a girl, and girl names if you're a boy. Are Dakota. You, are you? Uh, um. Are you 2021-ing me? Yes. <laughs> yes. So Lizzie Andrew Borden was born to Sarah Anthony and Andrew Jackson Borden. And that's probably where she got her middle name from. Her father was of <laughs> yeah, English... Yeah, probably. <laughs> her father was of English and Welsh descent, and she grew up... And he grew up in modest surroundings. He struggled financially as a young man, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents. He did, however, eventually come to prosper in the manufacture and sale of furniture and caskets. He then went on to become a successful property developer. He was a director of several textile mills and owned considerable commercial properties. He was also president of the Union Savings Banks. At his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, which is the equivalent to $9 million in 2019. So he was poor and then got rich. Andrew Borden was a frugal man, despite being so well off. So kind of like you. <laughs> yes, I have many, many monies. <laughs> I meant the frugal part. <laughs> and I don't know if I'd call you frugal. I would say more so the cheap part. Who the fuck do you think you are? I am your wife. My wife. My wife. Borat's re relevant again. It so is, yeah. I can say that. I know. The Borden home lacked indoor plumbing, although it was a common accommodation for wealthy people at the time. They also did not have electricity. Where they lived was considered an affluent era, but the wealthiest of the Fall River residents, including Andrew's cousins, tended to live in a more fashionable neighborhood called The Hill, which was further from the industrial areas of the city and much more homogenous racially, ethnically, and socioeconomically. The Borden family, however, did not live in this area. Lizzie, who was fond of fine clothes and longed to travel, frequently disagreed with her father's penny-pinching. The wealthy Borden was not a popular man, and he had personal and professional disputes with a large number of people, any of whom Lizzie later claimed could have had motive to kill him. At age 32, Lizzie was considered to be a spinster, as she was still living with her father at this time. What's a spinster again? Just like an old single lady. Oh, <laughs> I was, I was like, I was like, why, why are they telling her, telling us that that she loves loves to like knit? 
I don't I know, spinning, <laughs> spinstering, or uh, using Oh, a, I see what you're saying. Using like, spin- a, yeah, okay, Using no. a, uh, what's it called? A machine that you... A loom? Sure. I was going to say uh, um, one of those things that you make like a blanket out of, or a sewing. Sewing machine. <laughs> well, they didn't have sewing machines at this point in the history. I don't know when sewing machines were invented. Actually, probably in the factories they, they did, but I don't think that they would have, like, homes. What, what about, no, but what about those, like, old ones? The ones that were made out of those, like, tables and they had the big, like, wheel under them? A like loom. My, a, Is that what that is? Mm-hmm. A loom? Yeah, because, like, my grandma, grandma had one. Granted, she wasn't born in the 1800s, but... <laughs> yeah. Borden and her older sister, Emma, had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congregational Church. As a young woman, she was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States. She was involved in Christian organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society, where she was the secretary treasurer and contemporary social movements such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. That means they don't want people to drink. Mm. She was also a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission, which I don't know what that is. <laughs> we got a mission. It's fruit and flowers go (laughs) (laughs) three years after the death of lizzie borden's mother sarah andrew went on to marry another woman called abby durfee gray lizzie stated that she called her stepmother mrs borden and demurred on whether they had a cordial relationship she believed that abby had married her father for his wealth and many friends and family members later noted an uptick in tensions within the family months before the murders the Bordens live in maid, Bridget Sullivan, whom they also called Maggie, testified at trial that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. However, at trial, and again, this is exciting to me because I found trial documents and I was like, I am a true, true crime yeah. podcaster now. <laughs> that is what I am. Is this where we make the tr- transition? We are now uh, true crime. Maybe we could do like historical true crime. I'd, Maybe I'd season like two would just be historical true crime. Cool. We could do like Ed Gein. Yeah. Or that guy that ate humans? Oh, uh... Fischl? What? Isn't... Albert Fischl? Oh, no, is it? Well, okay, but I'm guessing there's multiple murders, because I was thinking... You were thinking of Dahmer. Dahmer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. No, I'm thinking, like, far, far back. Ooh, uh... I could do, like, Vlad the Impaler. So many options here. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. However, at trial, Bridget testified that between Lizzie and her stepmother, there was never to the witness's knowledge, an unkind word. On the day of the murder, Bridget stated that she had heard all three of them, Lizzie, Andrew, and Abby, all talking in the sitting room that morning, and Mrs. Borden asked Lizzie some questions, to which she answered civilly and properly. So far as she could see, they lived congenially and pleasantly. An interesting fact. I'll be the judge. Okay, they give some background information. Uh, Prior to the murders, there was a daytime robbery of the Borden home on June 24th, 19... On June 24th, 1891, at this time, Emma, Bridget, and Lizzie were all at home. Lizzie, who had earlier been accused of shoplifting by a local merchant, was the family's prime suspect. After this date, all doors to the Borden home, both inside and out, were kept locked. Hold on. There was a... Sorry, there was a robbery at their Mm -hmm. place? Yeah, so it happened during the daytime. Yeah, but they were at home. Yes. And... And the family assumed that it was Lizzie that did the stealing. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because she had been accused of shoplifting. Okay. I did use the word interesting, so I guess you win. That's an interesting fact. <laughs> I didn't mean to. That was a slip of the tongue. But no, that was an all right fact. Um, the, so after that, they kept everything locked? Yes. Okay. Because okay. they were like, oh, no more robberies. Yeah. That's absolutely. fair. That's what you do when you want to keep your thing safe is you lock your house. I know. I never 
I always lock my doors. Always. Always. Yeah. Well, but, we live in Canada. <laughs> but also prior prior to knowing Mr. Lawson here, I sometimes forgot to lock the doors. And like, are you talking at night? Yes. Dude. I come, I'm not not anymore since I've met you. I come from a small town where the next town over somebody was murdered I, because they story. didn't lock their doors. Well, I'm sure that the murderer wasn't like, you didn't lock your doors, so now I have to murder you. <laughs> I'm not saying that's related. I'm saying <laughs> that maybe he would have given up if they locked the doors. Gotcha. Probably not, though. Anyways, it's a tragic, it was a tragic tale. It, yeah. Continue. Um... So despite the fact that Bridget, the maid, said that there was no, like, unkind words between Mrs. Borden and Lizzie, it doesn't mean that tension did not exist. Andrew had also given gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. That's the stepmother. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters, Lizzie and Emma, demanded and received a rental property, which they purchased from their father for one dollar. A few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for $5,000, the equivalent to $142,000 this year. Now, in May 1892, Andrew killed a number of pigeons in his barn using a hatchet. These pigeons were, um, some people say they might have been Lizzie's pets. Not sure. What the fuck? He said that the (laughs) pigeons had been attracting local children to hunt them. Lizzie had recently built a roost for these pigeons, and it is commonly being recounted that she was upset by his killings of the pigeons. No shit. <laughs> Though the truthfulness of that claim has been disputed. Mm. Furthermore, a family argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take extended vacations in New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that the mutton left on the stove to use in different meals over several days was the cause, but Abby had feared poisoning, as Andrew was not a popular man. Mm, I just, I don't know what this says about my brain, but as soon as you said they were violently ill, I pictured their entire family just explosive diarrhea. Probably that is what happened. And they didn't have indoor plumbing, so. Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I would not have done well back in these times. That's fair. The night before the murders, John Morse, who is Lizzie and Emma's uncle on their dead mother's side, was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. Some people have speculated that their conversation, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated an already tense situation. However, in the trial documents, he did not state if that was the case, only that he had been there the night before the murders. So let's discuss them. The murders occurred on August 4th, 1892. John Morse had arrived on the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. The whole household, including Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, John, and Bridget, were present for breakfast on the morning of the 4th, although they did not all eat together. According to Bridget's testimony, Abby, Andrew, and John ate together, while Lizzie awoke sometime later and had a light breakfast on her own at 9 a.m. After breakfast, both John and Bridget stated that they saw Abby, Mrs. Borden, dusting in the area between the sitting room and the dining room. John then left at around 8.49, also like a very, dis- like... Very distinct. Distinguished time. <laughs> well, I meant like precise, but I don't know where I came distinct from. Yeah, uh, that's the word I meant, but I think you led me into the word distinguished by saying distinct. Yeah, so, so you're going to blame me. Anyways, that's your fault. I meant precise, but I'm a man who loves precise times, so I can relate. Yeah. 
So he went to go buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River. Like, like bulls? Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're in the 1800s. Okay, so I was like, like that's, a, that's what an interesting purchase. I'm going to go buy some oxen now. Mm-hmm. He planned to return to the Borden house for lunch at noon. Andrew then left for his morning walk sometime after 9 a.m. Bridget spent the rest of the morning until around 10.30 cleaning the windows on the house. She did have an interaction with Lizzie around this time when Lizzie appeared in the back entry and told her that she didn't need to lock the doors because you know that they usually do lock the doors now as she Lizzie would be around the house. Lizzie in her testimony, however, stated that she did not talk to Bridget about the windows and perhaps only spoke to her in regards to breakfast. But then after more questioning, she went on to admit that she did talk to Bridget, reminding her to shut the blinds when she was finished. After washing the windows, Bridget retired to her bed as she stated she had awoken with a bad headache that had caused her to feel ill the whole morning. So Lizzie was like, hey, don't lock the doors tonight. I'll be around. Mm-hmm. Is that, that's, that's the thing? Well, I don't know if she said it in that tone, <laughs> but yeah, essentially. <laughs> and Bridget's just like, they're like, what? Why the fuck are you saying it like that? <laughs> yeah. But, and then... I just want to get this straight. So yes, she, that's good. So she uh, said, don't lock the, the doors and windows. And then... No, just don't lock the doors. Don't lock the doors, sorry. And then later, when asked about this, she she said she didn't do that did, or didn't talk to that. Uh, she didn't talk to Bridget about it. But then later it came out that she did? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So she's full of shit. Perhaps. Hmm. <laughs> Cleaning the guest room was one of the chores that Lizzie and Emma were required to do. So remember, John had slept in the guest room. However, on this day, Abby went upstairs at some point between 9 and 10.30 in order to make the bed that John had slept in. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of her attack. She was first struck on the side of her head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Fuck. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct blows to the back of her head, killing her. Damn. Is there... I mean, I know there are worse ways to die, but damn. Getting killed by an axe, I feel like would be some of the worst kind of hell. Mm. Can you even imagine? Just no. it could be Because you're getting struck over and over again, not dying with a single strike, and just like... Well, you know, there have been some executions where the executioner was supposed to cut off a head and they missed and sucked at it. And like people were like, I'm still alive. And the executioner is just like (laughs) hacking at that neck. Oh my God. Yeah. And did the, did the mayor go, you had one job. (laughs) The mayor? I feel, I feel like, uh, I don't know. I feel like the, the, a guy in a top hat is there at that, at the execution. You know, he's got like a mustache. I'm picturing like the Monopoly man. Kind of, but England type type things, you know? Uh, In the 1500s. Yeah. But he had like a mustache, top hat, and he's like, uh, do you have any last words? Uh, murderer? I don't, I can't think of a name right now. Uh, <laughs> anyways, carry on. Yeah, so just make sure that you remember that Liz, mm-hmm. or Abby yeah. was killed between 9 and 10.30. Okay. On the second level okay. of the house. Okay. When Andrew returned at 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door to the house. So I guess the door must have been locked anyways. Uh So he knocked for attention. 
Bridget went to the door to unlock it, but found it jammed. <laughs> she, sorry, she she goes and locks the door. She's like, "Well, Abby t- uh, or uh, Liz told me not to uh, not to lock the door, but I said, now nah, that was fucking weird, so I'm gonna <laughs> lock the door." <laughs> she said in this really weird way. <laughs> it was very ominous. Exactly. Continue. <laughs> so uh, Bridget went to the door to unlock it, but found it jammed. She uttered an explic explet an expletive expletive expletive. There we go. She uttered an expletive, pshaw, to be Whoa. exact. <laughs> you kiss your mother with that mouth? <laughs> and would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. However, she did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. I think their house is haunted. I think I don't think Lizzie did it. Okay. Um, this was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that when her father returned, he had asked Lizzie where Abby was, to which she had replied that a messenger had delivered a summons asking Abby to come visit a sick friend. Reading through the testimony of the trial, a lawyer questions Lizzie continuously about whether she was upstairs or downstairs when her father returned. No, I might just be a small town lawyer, but were you upstairs or downstairs? (laughs) It's a callback to to an earlier episode. In her responses, Lizzie does not give a clear answer as to where she was during this time, stating that at first, yes, she was upstairs as she had to take some clothes upstairs, then stating that she was on the stairs themselves when her father came in, then to stating that she was in the kitchen when her father came in. And so we're going to read some of the testimony right now. Now, would you like to role play with me? Absolutely. I am a, I am a seasoned actor. <laughs> would you so. like to be the, um, the, the lawyer? Yes. <laughs> You remember, Miss Borden, I will call to your attention to it so as to see if anyone, any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you, you remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. You have forgotten, perhaps? I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and I am so confused. I don't know one thing from another. I'm telling you just as nearly as I know how. Now, I might just be a small-town lawyer, but calling your attention to what you said about that a few minutes ago, and now again to the circumstances, you have said you were upstairs when the bell rang and you were on the stairs when Maggie let her father in, shouting out an expletive, which now is your recollection of the true statement of the matter, that you were downstairs when the bell rang and your father came. I think I was downstairs in the kitchen. And then you were not upstairs? I think I was not, because I went up almost immediately as soon as I went down, and then I came down again and stayed down. What had you in your mind when you said you were on the stairs as Maggie let your father in? The other day, someone came there, and she let them in, and I was on the stairs. I don't know whether that was the morning before or when it was. You understand I was asking you exactly and explicitly about this fatal day? Yes, sir. I now call your attention to the fact that you had specifically told me that you had gone upstairs and had been there for about five minutes when the bell rang and you were on your way down and were on the stairs when Maggie let your father in that day. Yes, I said that. And then I said I did not know whether I was on the stairs or in the kitchen. Now, how will you have it? I think, as nearly as I know, I think I was in the kitchen. I might be a small-town lawyer, but it sounds like you're full of shit, or your house is haunted. So hopefully you can understand from that that it's uh, 
the lawyer keeps saying like where were you and she doesn't really give a straight answer and you can hear that she tries to play it off as she was confused she was like oh that might have been a different day that i was upstairs and bridget answered the door that and then my dad came in Mm -hmm. so yeah i i found it especially interesting how the small town lawyer brought up that the house might be haunted (laughs) okay (laughs) don't confuse the listeners okay i did it he didn't actually say that i added my own my own little flair Lizzie then stated that she had removed her father's boots and helped him put his slippers on before he went to lay down on the sofa for a nap, which is an anomaly that was contradicted by the crime scene photos, which show Andrew wearing boots. Lizzie then told Bridget that there was a department sale going on, and if Bridget wanted to go, she could. However, as we know, Bridget was feeling unwell, and so she went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. Bridget testified that she was in her third floor room taking a rest from cleaning the windows when just before 11.10, she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, and I keep referring to her as Bridget, but in the testimony, they keep calling her Maggie. Now who's confusing the listeners? Me. (laughs) Come quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was found slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when he was attacked, and his nose had been completely severed. He had been so viciously attacked that his face was nearly unrecognizable. His still bleeding wounds and warm body when the police arrived suggested a very recent attack. So, this is interesting. From what I know about serial killers and stuff like that, like, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but this, that sounds... Like a personal attack. Mm-hmm. When you uh, chop someone's eye in half, sever their nose, like, that's not just killing them. That's like, you have wronged me. Mm. The family physician who lived across the street, Dr. Bowen, was called to determine the both that both victims were dead. And detectives estimated that Andrew's death occurred approximately at 11 a.m., They deduced that Abby's death at between 9 and 10.30 because her body was found cold. Fun fact, the doctors performed the post-mortems on the bodies right there in the house, on the dining room table, and the bodies were left there for a few nights, while the rest of the Borden family and a family friend named Alice Russell, which is an important name, Uh slept upstairs. Wait, they still slept in the house? Yes. (laughs) So we're going to leave your dead family here on the table, but... uh... Uh, we don't have the money to board you up anywhere else, so good night. <laughs> I know, I was like, this is so weird. Why is this happening? I don't know, 1800s. Yeah, time. we don't have a, a space at the morgue, so. <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie attempted to deflect suspicion, and at first the police did not suspect her, as she was a spinster from a respected and well-off family. And Lizzie swore to the district attorney that she was in the barn when the attacks took place, but she soon became the prime suspect in the murders. Her initial answers to the police officers' questions were at times strange and contradictory. Lizzie told police that she was in the barn at the time of the murders, and she had heard noises coming from the house. She reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, however, she told the police that she had heard nothing and entered the house not realizing that anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she retold the story of Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend, which Bridget had stated in her testimony that Lizzie had also told her, although she declined to mention to Bridget which friend was sick. At the time of questioning, Lizzie was still saying that Abby had gone to see this friend, and her whereabouts were unknown, and so Bridget went upstairs to look for her. 
Bridget and a neighbor were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. So what that really means is that um, they called the police to deal with Andrew. And the police were probably like, well, where's your stepmother? And Lizzie was like, "Uh, she's gone off to visit this sick friend. Go look for her. Let's go see if we can find her. So Bridget and this other lady go upstairs to see if they can find her. And that's where they find the dead body. Mm -hmm. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. However, none of these tools were removed from the house, nor was Lizzie ever checked for bloodstains. Despite police later stating that they didn't like Lizzie's attitude, with some stating that she seemed too calm and poised, none of them bothered to search her room either, because as they stated later at trial, Lizzie was not feeling well. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomachs were tested for poison. However, none was found. Ah, we couldn't find poison. Turns out they just had the shits. (laughs) In the days following the murder, an abundance of clues popped up, including a bloody hatchet that was found on a neighboring farm, but it had actually only been used to kill chickens. A man was also seen wandering the Borden's property, but he had an airtight alibi for the time of the murders. Even Bridget was a suspect before the police finally zeroed in on Lizzie. But there was no physical evidence, not even a bloody scrap of clothing to implicate Lizzie. Except there was just no one else that could have done it. The timeline doesn't make sense any other way. If Abby was killed in the morning, the murderer, if it wasn't Lizzie or Bridget, would have been hiding in the house for several hours waiting for Andrew to return, facing the chance of being caught by any of the people in the Borden house. And no one could actually find the note that Lizzie stated had called Abby away. Abby had clearly never made it out of the house, so where was this note? Lizzie told her friend Alice Russell that her stepmother may have accidentally burned it. Eventually, investigators also discovered that the day before the murders took place, Lizzie had tried to buy prussic acid, otherwise known as cyanide, from a drugstore, but the clerk said she needed a prescription before she could purchase it. On August 6, 1892, so this is two days after the murders, Police conducted a more thorough search of the home, inspecting the sisters' clothes and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. Authorities then conducted an inquest, and Lizzie took the stand each day. So that trial that we, or those questions that we just role-played. Yeah. Those are from the um, inquest. And so one thing that I found was interesting. Wait, sorry. Role played? We just played a clip from the actual. That's... That was from the actual uh, investigation in the 1800s, you know? Right. Yeah. So yes. that wasn't us. That's true. Uh, so an inquest <laughs> and like a pre-trial standing. Um, I learned a lot about all of these facts. And so like before you actually go to trial, you have like all the questions that happened before. And then you have a pre-trial period where the judge will like listen to the evidence that you have to see if there's like enough evidence to actually go to trial. So I'm going to talk about a few of those things in this story just so that we know. So the inquest um, is, I guess we would kind of in think of it as like a questioning period between the police officers Um and Lizzie, and they're just kind of like trying to get the facts straight of what happened. And she actually never stands trial. She doesn't get called to the like witness box, but she does have like this testimony that she gives. Okay. And so that's what this is. Authorities then conducted an inquest and Lizzie took the stand each day. This was the only time she testified in court under oath. 
This added more to the inconsistencies in her testimony, and it was seemingly more and more self-incriminating. During this time, she had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, and it is possible that her testimony at this time was affected by this. Her family doctors staunchly believed in Lizzie's innocence and testified to this effect. Her sister, Emma, almost also defended her at this time, saying that the sisters harbored no anger towards their stepmother. However, Lizzie's behavior was erratic, and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would have been beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounting of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing, then saying she was coming down the stairs. And as I previously mentioned, she said that she had removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, while police photographs clearly showed him wearing boots. The police investigation, as we know it, uncovered that at the time of the murders, Emma was 15 miles away on vacation. John Morse, the uncle, was in town, thus leaving only Bridget and Lizzie in the house. We know Bridget was outside washing windows and then taking a nap. On the other hand, the investigation was unable to consistently account for Lizzie's whereabouts at the time of the murders, and so Borden was arrested and put in jail on August 11th, as the judge, district attorney, and police marshal determined that Lizzie was probably guilty. The inquest testimony, which is what I was talking about previously, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial, and my guess is that she had no lawyer present at the time of that, so it were like, they were like, we can't let that evidence be given to the trial. Okay. This is making me want to watch Amityville Horror with Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Why? Right? I'm just like, I don't know, people get murdered in a house. And then I was thinking about hauntings because, you know, I'm not really about ghosts. So it's a good movie, though. Okay. <laughs> Lizzie's arrest provoked an uproar that quickly spread across the country. Women's groups rallied to Lizzie's side, especially the Women's Christian Temperance Union and suffragists. Suffragists are women who are wanting the right to vote because at this time they didn't have the right to vote. Mm. This, it seemed weird to me that suffragettes would want to support her until I dug a little bit deeper. Um, they stated that at trial, Lizzie would not be properly judged by a jury of her peers because at this time, women did not have the right to vote and therefore could not serve on juries. So she mm. would be judged by men. Ah, uh, Interesting. Lizzie, coming from a very wealthy family, could afford the best legal representation, and one of Boston's most prominent defense lawyers joined the family attorney to advocate for her innocence. During the preliminary trial, the small courtroom was packed with Lizzie's supporters, particularly women from the wealthy neighborhood The Hill. During the testimony, they learned that a Harvard chemist reported that he had found no blood on the two axes and two hatchets that police had retrieved from the cellar. As well, the dress that Lizzie gave to the police two days after the murders, the dress that she had allegedly wore on the morning of August 4th had only a minuscule spot of blood on the hem. But keep that detail in mind as we go on. Her attorney stressed that the prosecution offered no murder weapon and possessed no bloody clothes. And, response to, and in response to trying to buy prussic acid, they said that Lizzie was a victim of misidentification. One of the key things to note about Lizzie's trial, however, is the cultural ramifications that gender stereotypes, money, and nativism would have on this trial. Lizzie's supporters continued to claim that it was inconceivable that she, a well-bred, virtuous Victorian woman, a Protestant nun, if you will, for this is what the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union called her, would ever commit patricide. Also, uh, my, my mother would kill me if she didn't, uh, if I didn't make the inconceivable joke. <laughs> are, you, are you familiar? 
Prince Princess Bride, Bride yeah. obviously. Sorry, you you didn't laugh hard enough. So Sorry. like like uh, this is awkward. The reference to the Protestant nun raises the issue of the growing numbers of American-born women in the late 19th century New England who remained single. The research of historians who have studied this has documented how the label of spinster has obscured the diverse reasons for why women remained single. For some, the ideal of a virtuous Victorian womanhood was unrealistic and even oppressive. The culture demanded that this virtuous woman only became a true woman when she was morally pure, physically delicate, and socially respectable. Preferably, she was married and had children. But some women sought to escape this. They saw new educational opportunities and self-supporting independence as an, as an attainable goal. Still, other women simply could not trust that they would choose the right man for a life of marriage. So the Borden sisters fit the stereotype of spinster. On their birth mother's deathbed, their mother made Emma promise that she would look after baby Lizzie. Emma was about 10 years older than Lizzie, and she seems to have devoted her life to looking after her younger sister. Lizzie also fit the stereotype of spinster as she acquired the public profile of Fall River's most prominent Protestant nun. She was engaged in various religious and social activities from the Women's Christian Temperate Union to the Christian Endeavor and served on the board of the Fall River Hospital. So this belief that she's so good or whatever um, affected the way that people saw her. Mm. So all of these stereotypes are working in Lizzie's favor. However, despite a rousing closing argument from her defense attorney at the preliminary hearing, the judge determined that she was probably guilty and should remain in jail until there was a superior court trial. <laughs> what, a, <laughs> what a great judge. Yeah, she's probably guilty. <laughs> yeah, let's keep her in jail. The thing about the legal system is that you will be arrested, there will be a pretrial hearing to determine if there is enough evidence to go to trial, and this can all take time before you actually have your day in court, which I already talked about, but I repeated it. Neither the attorney general, who is the person who prosecutes capital crimes, nor the district attorney were eager to bring Lizzie before a superior court judge, despite both believing she was guilty. There were holes in the police's evidence, and she had all that local support behind her. However, this is about to change with some dramatic testimony on the day of December 1. We're not Australian here. We say December 1st. Alice Russell. Do you remember her? You said, remember this name. Mark my words. Mm -hmm. Something like that. She was a single, pious 40-year-old woman who was also a close friend of Lizzie and Emma, and she had been summoned to Lizzie's house shortly after the murders. That night and several nights after... Lizzie had slept in the Borden house with the brutalized victim stretched out on mortician boards in the dining room. Russell was also sleeping in the house those nights. Russell had testified at the inquest, preliminary hearing, and earlier before the grand jury, but she had kept one important detail close to her heart. Distressed over this secret, she consulted with a lawyer who told her she must immediately tell the district attorney. And so, on December the 1st, Alice returned to the grand jury. She now testified that in the Sunday morning after the murders, Lizzie pulled a dress from a shelf in the pantry closet and proceeded to burn it in the cast iron coal stove. <gasps> what? The grand jury indicted Lizzie the next day, meaning that they could now take her to trial for real trial. <laughs> this time it's for real. Well, because I was I mean, like she had like the inquest and then yeah. she had the pre-trial and da 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 da. So <laughs> now she's actually going to like see if she was guilty. Right. However. Knowlton, which is the prosecutor, underestimated the legal and cultural impediments that he faced. Lizzie's demeanor in court also influenced the outcome, which speaks to the gender paradox I was talking about earlier. In a courtroom where men reserved all the legal power, Lizzie was not actually a helpless maiden. 
She only needed to present herself as one, as that pious, virtuous Victorian woman. She dressed in all black at court. She was tightly corseted, wearing flowing clothes and holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a fan in the other. One newspaper described as quiet, modest, and well-bred, the epitome of the virtuous Victorian woman, one who could never commit a murder as such as that she was accused of. Another newspaper said that she lacked the, quote, Amazonian proportions, meaning that she could not possess the physical strength, let alone the moral degeneracy, to wield a weapon with such skull-cracking force. Both victims' heads had been removed during autopsy, and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial. Upon seeing them in the courtroom, Borden fainted, and the evidence about the prussic acid was ultimately excluded from the grand jury trial, as the judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection. On top of that, the jury itself was a hurdle. The town of Fall River was excluded from the jury pool, so the members of the jury were made up from members of the county's small, heavily agricultural towns. Half of the jurors were farmers and the others were tradesmen. Most were practicing Protestants, some with daughters Lizzie's age. Not surprisingly, the jury decided to acquit her. Then they waited an hour to say so, so that it would not look like they had made a hasty decision. <laughs> so that's really do, all I know about the you, decision. Do you think that happens often? That they, like after a murder trial, they get <laughs> the jury meets in the back room. They're like, well, they, they definitely fucking did it, right? But like, we got to... We can't seem like it was... We can't give a verdict right away. Let's... You want to give us lunch? Maybe. Let's subway around the street. <laughs> I don't think they're allowed out of that room. Oh. We'll skip the dishes. That's you know? true. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I kind of... I was like a little anticlimactic, but essentially she was acquitted. And oh. so they didn't find her guilty. Okay. So wait, do we have a... um? So she, after this... Do you have more information? I do. I've got some more stuff to talk about. Okay. So, but like basically just what happens to her afterwards. Right, right. So I'm curious, like, because you said you alluded to the fact that after this, this followed her for yes. the rest of her life. Yes. So let's get into that. Yeah. The courtroom audience cheered Lizzie's acquittal, but her life was forever altered. Two months after the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large, modern house in the Hill neighborhood, which is what she had wanted all along. Sorry, I just, I, I've been thinking this every time you say the Hill. <clears throat> do you know that show, The Hills? I do. <laughs> I was just thinking they should make a, uh, um, like a, a sequel show or a prequel show, rather, where it's about them living in the Hill. <laughs> it's just called The Hill instead of The Hills. There, nailed it. <clears throat> Boom. Around this time, Lizzie started going by Lizbeth. Which I have now decided is a dope name, and I wish to be only called this. <laughs> Lizbeth. Mm -hmm. Hello, Lizbeth. I kind of like it. Okay, well, I'll call you that then. Good. At their new house, which Lizbeth called Maplecroft, they had a staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Despite her acquittal, Lizbeth was ostracized by the Fall River Society. Her name was brought up again when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lisbeth had held, Emma moved out of the house and the sisters never spoke again. What? Some speculation. Although acquitted, Lizzie, or Lisbeth, does remain the prime suspect in the murders. Writer Victoria Lincoln proposed in 1967 that Lizzie might have committed the murders while in a fugue state. But it means like she couldn't remember what had happened. Mm. Another prominent suggestion was that Lizzie had been physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to kill him. There is little evidence to support this assertion, but at the same time, this type of abuse would not have been discussed at the time of the murders, and the methods for collecting physical evidence would have been very different than what police do now. 
Mystery writer Ed McBain wrote a book in 1984 titled Lizzie, and in this book he suggested that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian relationship with Bridget. Where, where did he get this from? He just made it up. He's a oh, this is just a, a work of a work of fiction. Yes. Oh, that that sounds like some some hardcore fanfic. He's like, what if she was gay <laughs> with her sister? Bridget is the maid. With a maid, I thought Bridget was the sister. Emma's the sister. God, I can't keep it straight. The point, the point is that's some sort of like, yeah, some sort of fanfic thing where they're just—he's like, what a sick individual. That's Abs- what this guy is. <laughs> McBain speculated that Abby had caught Lizzie and Bridget together and reacted with horror and disgust, causing Lizzie to kill her with a candlestick, which she wasn't killed with. But was he playing Clue when he thought of this? <laughs> like, well, there's just. Killed her with the candlestick in the study. When Andrew returned, Lizzie confessed to him, but killed him in a rage when he responded exactly as Abby had. And again, this is in the book. Right. McBain further speculates that Bridget hid the hatchet somewhere afterwards. In her later years, and this is in this is in true life, Lizzie was rumored to be a lesbian, but Bridget never was. She later went on to marry a man in Montana. However, Bridget did allegedly give a deathbed confession to her sister stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. So that is fact. Well, fact, sort of. Like, it's hearsay, but... What she said. Yeah. yeah. That didn't happen in the book. <clears throat> Interesting. There is also a movie with Kristen Stewart called Lizzie that came what? out in 2018. What? Yeah. Uh, okay. I think I saw the first half of it, and then I just mm. stopped watching because I was like, this is really boring, which sucks because <clears throat> I read the synopsis of yeah. it, and I was like, this sounds awesome. What? <laughs> To be fair, I, I don't think Kristen Stewart is perf- is capable of giving a not boring performance. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> this movie shows many of the events that I had talked about, but gives a very different motives for them. For example, in response to the alleged robbery of the house that Lizzie was suspected of, Andrew killed Lizzie's pigeons and served them to her the next day as dinner. Fuck. <laughs> so both of these events did happen, but the motives behind them are very different, and Andrew did not feed the pigeons to Lizzie. Both John the uncle and Bridget have been rumored to be the culprit. John because he had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby. And Bridget because she was mad that she had been forced to wash the windows on such a hot day and she was still recovering from her mysterious illness that had run through the Borden household. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to clean windows when you're pooping yourself. It's true. Scholar Anne Schofield notes that Borden's story has tended to take one or the other of two fictional forms, the tragic romance and the feminist quest. As the story of Lizzie Borden has been created and recreated through rhyme and fiction, it has taken on qualities of a popular American myth or legend that effectively links past to present. The Borden House is now a museum and operates a bed and breakfast with an 1890s styling, and we're going to go there when COVID is done. Pieces of evidence used in the trial, including the axe head, are preserved at the Fall River Historical Society. So what do you think, Coda? Did she do it? Well, I'm not ruling out ghosts, but... I find it interesting that uh, one of the people, who was it her sister, said she changed her testimony? Bridget, the maid. Oh, the maid. God, why do I keep thinking they're sisters? Emma's maybe, the sister. Maybe I'm the sicko, not this McBain guy. You can remember his name, though. Well, because I was thinking of the p- popular um, uh, character from The Simpsons, uh, McBain. He's the, oh. uh, the action hero guy, right? Got it. So, anyways. Uh so I find it interesting that she said she changed her testimony to protect her. 
But we don't know if that's true. Wait, we don't know if she said that? Well, she allegedly gave this deathbed confession Mm. to her sister. Right. So that's not really been been proved. Right, okay. But it could have happened. Could have happened. I don't know. That oh, this is one of those ones that it's it's tough. Uh, that we don't actually, and we'll never get an answer. I think most people think she did it. I think so. Anyways, what do you think? I mean, he did kill her pigeons. He did. Imagine. I mean, we have three dogs. There are babies. If anyone harmed them, <laughs> you'd go ballistic. I wouldn't kill them. <laughs> sure, you wouldn't, dear. Anyways, I yeah, I don't know. I. I think it's highly likely that she did do it. But again, am I just saying that because most people think that? And am I a sheeple? Maybe. Could it have been ghosts? Probably. Mm. But we'll never know. I guess not. So my my rating. I'm trying to think of a zinger after the... the, I know what the score is, but I'm trying to think of something. Um, I give this (gasps) 9.3... Ghosts probably did it out of 10. <laughs> I got really excited there. Yeah, you did. How do you feel about that? That's your highest score so far. Is that my highest? I thought I got a 9.5. Did you? On one of them. I don't remember. These scores uh, are, are essentially meaningless. So just uh, essentially just to, essentially to just to give you a, a dopamine rush. Oh. Uh, so, But that's either the highest or the second highest. I think Rasputin might have gotten a higher one. Oh, he might have gotten a higher Okay, so this one. I really like it. I can, you know, everyone loves a good true crime yep. <laughs> story. So I think that uh, um, I think that it would be cool to see other historical um, events based on, or like true crime historical events from yesteryear. Mm. Um, I think that would be fascinating not to say all of them have to be that because we're not a true crime podcast but i think um you know it is part of history so so, uh i think we can put that spin on it what do you think listeners should we do that write into us and let us know and did she do it and was she romantically involved with her not sister bridget yeah let us know what you think in the comments i don't know do we have we don't have comments let us know what you think though send send us an email send us an email which we'll get to in a second yeah so that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Leave a review or tell your friends about us. And listeners, if you want to see behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at the Reluctant Historian. Are you still updating that? I am. Awesome. I'm not on Instagram right now, but... Or... If you would like to send us a correction connection, a mistake you have made and noticed, or future show ideas, feel free to email us at thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. So, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. And remember, kids, don't kill your parents just because they kill your pigeons. (laughs) Now stay tuned to listen to a trailer from our friends over at Half Wit History. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Erickson, host of The Open Highway. You know, I've had some incredible adventures in my life, and along the way I learned a little bit about everything, which, to be honest with you, is just enough to get me into trouble. But I bring that with me when I sit down with guests from the worlds of politics, news, science, current events, entertainment, and more. The Open Highway with Eric Erickson. Join me on The Open Highway, and let's have a conversation. Find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.